Yeah. Yeah. If you hear me going, Hey, so they just be like, Hey, <laughs> Hey, we can hear you. It's your, it's your stupid <laughs> headphones. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, great. I got some new headphones. That's, that's one thing we can, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll um, be interested to see how it sounds. All right. What's up? Anything else new or fun that you've um, done? No, nothing really. Just, uh, we had WrestleMania weekend this past weekend. Nice. How was that? Yeah, that was fun. There's like, there's probably about 16 events total from other like companies run events around the, in the city that WrestleMania is in. So I watched yeah. probably like eight of them total i probably spent about 20 hours watching wrestling between <laughs> thursday and sunday night <laughs> well, that's cool i mean yeah i didn't, I didn't realize it was like such a i mean i know wrestlemania is a big thing but i didn't know it was like a regional or a, yeah <laughs> i know, never like knew about there's... that either till a couple of years ago i'm like well this is fun so yeah i got that was entertaining i haven't seen any movies like besides besides what we've we watched. watched for this yeah. yeah i went to see uh john wick four which um the, i don't i don't know man I, I i get why people like those movies i really loved the first one i remember i saw that kind of opening weekend before any hype and i was i was yeah. kind of stoked because i it was getting good reviews on like finally an action movie you know r-rated whatever and i was like awesome and and it was it didn't disappoint i loved it and i was super excited when the sequel came out but i feel like just each one has been like they're getting like more and more and bigger and bigger but i think they're just like less and less and less and you know, yeah. people who like them are going to be like, oh, that's sacrilege or whatever, like, because they're so, so cool and there's so much, uh, you know, shit yeah. to look at. But it's just, I don't know, the, all this world building and mythology. Have you seen any of those? Or? I've, I've seen the three, but I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you anything that happens in one as opposed to three. Like, I remember, obviously, the the dog getting killed or whatever. Yeah, and right. And that cool house he had that gets blown up but like other than that i don't remember like i couldn't tell that's you what, what i happened. mean though in in the first one there was like time for all that stuff you know there was like yeah. cool stuff about like his you know his, his dog and they showed him uh like getting all his guns out of the you know busting up that mm -hmm. concrete floor and pulling out his oh yeah and, and then it was yep. like revenge thing and then there were those like every every action scene was cool because it was like nonstop, you know crazy action and everyone after that like the whole movie has just been that and it's, it's just completely kind of beginning to end yeah yeah, yeah it is <laughs> and they just keep getting longer so this one is just three hours of you know other than the first maybe half hour where they're kind of delving into the plot a little bit then it's just non-stop action it's three and, hours uh yeah almost well with previews oh, you know it was yeah we in, yeah in the theater for three hours but oh. um yeah i think it's like i think it's 246 or okay. something like that or whatever so but uh, still insane. But yeah, it's not it's not bad by any means. I mean, it's it's well done and well executed. And like on a technical level, you can't be like, oh, that that was a poorly made movie. But I mean, God, I'll right. never fucking probably watch it again. You know, it's just <laughs> and, right. and each one's been you know more and more like that. And I like two well enough. But I remember I watched it a second time, and I was just like, God, this this movie is just just too much you know and and it was funny too because one of my favorite movies of the last little while or action movies is the raid have you ever seen that movie um no it's like an indonesian import or whatever it kind of kicked off okay. this wave of just these movies that are like one long fight sequence but i'd never seen anything like that before and it's about this guy who's trying to get from the bottom level of a building you know to the top to get the bad yeah. guy and it's just it's just constant you know, action, shooting, fighting, and and, and yeah. that movie is super cool. But it runs a brisk like ninety minutes. You'd never seen anything like it before. Um, and then all of a sudden, like every movie started copying it, and, and 
uh, you know, John Wick came out shortly after, and I thought that was cool too because it wasn't you know old hat yet or whatever. But yeah, now it's just like there's a shitload of movies like that, and some of them are really good. There's a couple other ones even with the same guy from the raid that I really like. But um, like one of them on Netflix, the the night comes for us or whatever people were talking about a couple years ago, okay. and that one's cool. Uh, there's one called Headshot that's cool, but but yeah, if this is just going to be the thing now where you know they just make movies that are just nothing but yeah, at least throw that. something something different in there. You don't need yeah. to make four of the same movie essentially, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, that's the thing. They're just like, well, how do we top the last one? So they just keep getting. Mm-hmm. It's like a Marvel movie or something. They're like, let's make yep. it longer and let's just make it mm-hmm. you know more crazy. And apparently, that's what people want. And and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I again, I'm I'm kind of in the minority everybody who sees it seems to love it and just raves about how great it is but i think some of that's just the world we live in now you know every right. movie is is either a total piece of shit or the most fucking amazing the thing greatest ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly everyone's reactionary and yeah for sure and, and got to get the be the first one to tweet about it and you know yeah <laughs> that sort of thing yeah. um, i'm trying to think i know i watched something else but um I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but yeah, theater movie wise, that's the only thing I've seen. Oh, I saw the new Scream. Uh, I think we've done a podcast since I saw that, but I don't know if we talked about it. That's not. I good, saw you. But... Yeah, I saw you tweet about it a couple of times. It sounds. Yeah. Some people were saying it's the best one. I even saw an yeah. article thing like this is the best. Once again, one. who fucking knows, man? I mean, I don't know where <laughs> right. people's heads are at, but um, it's I I can see enjoying it and whatnot, mm. but I don't know. And that's a series I like. I mean, I don't I don't love it you know but i yeah. there's not really one in there that i really hate and uh this last one i wouldn't say i hated it but i mean it, it's again uh, i don't i'll probably never watch that one again or right. i don't my kids really like them for some reason though so i'm sure i'll get stuck seeing it again but it just seemed like the performances were really bad and the twist was bad and it just seemed like it was done to the, the last one only came out a year ago and it was a hit right like, oh i guess we got to just keep keep this gravy train rolling and it just it felt like that kind of movie you know super rushed and just few even connective tissue anymore to the the original they brought back like courtney cox for a bit and you know hayden panettiere or whatever she was in the fourth one they brought her back but otherwise it's just you know they're okay trying to make it like a new thing and it's just it's not it's not good but <clears throat> whatever it, it's not a matter of not having I the saw same the first cast two. Yeah, they're all good movies. Yeah. Three was always sort of the run to the litter, I think, was the general consensus. But uh, I liked three way better than this this last one. So, okay. I don't know. They just need to stop, or at least wait until they have a, a good idea and reason to bring it back. If they're just going to do it every year until they run it into the ground, it's not going to be good. Right. But, but whatever, as long as it makes money. That's Hollywood people... for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, anyway, this is a podcast called The Big 4-0 with Ron and Peter. I'm Ron. I'm Peter. <laughs> uh, every week we take a look at a movie that came out this week 40 years ago. Uh, this week we are not looking at any movie that came out 40 years ago. One of them came out, uh, what would it be, uh, 46 years ago? And yep. uh, the other one was 17, 17 years ago. So. Yep. Um, yeah. So we're talking about The Gauntlet from 1977, starring Clint Eastwood and Sandra Locke, and uh, 16 Blocks from 2006, starring Bruce Willis, most deaf David Morse. Is it Morse? Is that how you pronounce that? Morse. Yeah, like Morse, Morse. code, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just making sure. Um, yeah. And the reason why, I don't know. How do we get on this? We were talking about Willis the last couple of weeks, and I think I mentioned yeah. 16 Blocks. You said you'd never seen it. 
I said it was good. You should watch it. And then I said it reminded me of the gauntlet with Clint. You said I never saw that one. And I said, well, that would make a good theme episode. And um, here we are. So I, I don't think there's anything are. super good that opened this this week or around this time 40 years ago. So that's part of the, the reason for this, too. Even though we should probably get around to, what was it, Spring Break and uh, Screwballs? Were the, screwballs, yeah. The options. Yep. All right. I happened <laughs> to watch Screwballs during the pandemic or something, and um, it, it's not good, but I'm happy to <laughs> look at it through the lens of this podcast and see if maybe I changed my mind. But Maybe it'll become a four-star affair. <laughs> yeah, Spring Break, I uh, I think I actually own in one of those goofy like four-packs of you know 80s sex comedies or awesome 80s <laughs> whatever and so i know i've seen it but um i couldn't tell you what it is or, or whatever so I, I you know there's so many of those from that time so right interested to watch both of those we'll get around to them at some point but uh these two movies i think are uh, well i don't know if they're way better we'll see what we both thought of them but um at any rate they're they're a more interesting uh pair and like we keep saying limiting ourselves to 40 years ago we're never going to get around to some of these so it's a good idea to kind of jump back a little before the 40 year mark and uh a little bit closer to where we are now so anyway Absolutely. uh start this how i always do peter have you seen the gauntlet or 16 blocks prior to that? i had not i had not seen either movie um okay. i'd heard well obviously i'd heard of 16 blocks in the gauntlet but um the gauntlet i believe my brothers both my brothers are about 10 years older than me and they uh both enjoyed a lot of eastwood movies and i remember one of them i can't remember which one but one of them really liked the gauntlet okay and i should have uh should have reached out to see which one it was to see see if they had any anecdotes about it but uh so yeah never never got around to seeing it i always remember the box and i think i had seen um at least part of that helicopter chase before um okay yeah 16 blocks was something that i don't know why i don't know if i was going to a lot of movies when that movie came out um but I was, you know, that's an intriguing cast. I didn't realize until a month or so ago that Richard Donner directed it. So that was kind yeah. of a. Like I think a we were Donner talking about Assassins. Willis. We were kind of talking about some of the other stuff he yeah. did and, and whatever. Yeah. And um, yeah, you kind of you forget about him. Um, the uh, Gauntlet for me was one where I went through a phase in high school where I decided that Clint Eastwood was my favorite actor, hands down. I'm going to go like watch all his stuff. And, and he has so much, even back then. And that was, now he's probably close to double his filmography in the last, you know, 25 years or whatever. He was just insanely prolific. But even then I had to go back and watch all this stuff, like the Iger sanction and two meals for sister Sarah. And, you know, just movies that just kind of fell through the cracks and people don't really talk about a lot. Cause he's just got so many. And, um, they were all really good in the gauntlet. Like you said, it's one I kind of remember the box. I, I remember my mom talking about it. Like we'd talk about, oh, what's your, or I, I don't know if it was bringing up favorite Clint movies, but like they, they'd be on TV sometimes. And that one comes, she'd be like, oh, is that the one with the bus? And I just remember the, the <laughs> bus ending, which we'll, we'll get into and everything. Um, yeah. And then Sandra Locke is the other touchstone because she's in a handful of Clint Eastwood movies and they um, subsequently became an item and then had kind of a messy breakup and and whatever but so that's those are the two things i remember um you know people sort of saying about that by people i guess i mean my mom or whatever because when you're <laughs> a young kid you don't really have your your mm -hmm. ear to the ground on 
films of the 70s. But um, anyway, so I, I that's what I knew it as. I never remember actually watching it. I probably caught parts of it on TV or something. And then finally, I, I watched it back in that uh, that whole that time period. I was watching all of them. And I remember it was one that stood out for me as being one I, I liked uh, you know, more than some of the others. And I bought it probably on VHS and then again on DVD. And um, I don't have it on Blu-ray these days, but I still have my my you know first generation dvd from back when those came out in the in the late 90s and it's been a long time since i've watched it i'm glad I, that we kind of got to revisit it and i looked at it with some some fresh eyes and i noticed some stuff about it particularly eastwood's direction because this is kind of early in his sort of you know actor director phase yeah i was gonna ask um, about that yeah uh, play misty for me was his first Oh, that's right. Okay. One, and uh, I, I want to say that's 73. I don't have it in front of me, but so this is four years after that. But I think by this point, he'd already done, you know, quite a few. So, um, yeah, it was it was interesting to kind of watch him uh, kind of flush out that, but then also compare it to where he's at now as a director and how, how some of these movies <laughs> look and, and feel. And, and then it's also, it's kind of like a Dirty Harry movie in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously they changed the name and... Um, the, the copy plays in here. His name is Ben Shockley, which couldn't be any <laughs> less dirty, hairy sounding. Right. And he's also an alcoholic and all that, but he still plays this sort of grizzled, you know, kind of kind of fearless guy. But but he's vulnerable. And he's kind of he's kind of daffy and uh, you know sort of silly, and he he's not a man who's you know in charge and seen it all the way dirty Harry is, and he's also a kind of a drunk, and that's not something they ever really. Right pinned on harry so um well yeah i guess we'll cut to the chase what'd you think of it for a for a first time watch at 40 years 46 years 46 <laughs> years uh yeah i i liked the gauntlet um very you know very entertaining very uh well paced good you know some good action so not all the action was good um yeah well keep I in mind it's 46 yeah. years old so the, oh sure yeah the standard of action is <laughs> yeah there's just uh there's something in the way and i was gonna get around to this later uh but i'll just say part of it now is the way he films the way he films fight scenes in some of those movies especially yeah. the the any which way you can every which way but loose um this movie the, the, the shaky the fight, like point of view yes. shaking cam yeah yep. yeah and he did that even in the rookie oh yes yeah. it's that, it's a staple scene. of his his yeah, style and I don't sure. know why he. I don't know why because it's really, it's it's hard to, uh, it's hard to See even what's tell what's on. happening. Right. I think the idea is, you know, for for lack of probably a bigger budget, more cameras, you know, whatever, it just gives it a sense of urgency and intimacy yeah. and immediacy where you know it's it's just you're you're there, you're into it, and I think that is, if I had to guess, I, I would say that's why he chose that. Right style or, or aesthetic, but you're right. He uses it in a lot of movies. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This one it didn't bother me too much. I assume you're talking about the train scene for the most part. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I thought it was brief or at least enough. You know, it wasn't like it went on forever. It wasn't you know making me nauseous or you know, right. just no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it was. It's okay. Um, but I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I noticed he that. does. Uh... He does love the the punching at the camera, the, yep. like swinging yep. the fist at the camera. <laughs> this is well, it's funny, funny, you know, you you think of it and you want to say like, God, he always does that or he did that so long. But you know, let's say 
let's say he didn't really do that a whole lot after the rookie. Um, and he, mm-hmm. I'm sure he did in, in certain moments, but I don't recall right. another one that blatantly like a long fight scene where it's, you know, in anything after that, I, him punching at the camera is a thing. I, I can mm-hmm. think of that in like a perfect world and uh, even, you know, unforgiven and stuff, but it, say it stops with the rookie and say it starts with maybe a movie three years before this, that you're only talking sure. about, you know, not even 15 years of movie making where he yeah. kind of employed that. So, and it probably got him yeah, to the 80s. Uh, it's like, you know, oh, sure. As an action director, what are you going to do? You don't have a Rambo budget or a, you know, Predator <laughs> right. budget. And, and he's directing them himself. So, uh, you know, he doesn't have somebody else's uh, ideas or stylistic input. Uh, right. So, I think it's just kind of that sort of became his aesthetic. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I know what you're saying. I don't, I know, I don't hate it or, or mind it, right. but uh, it stands out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is. It's distinguishable. Um, the, there are some other, you know, Sandra Locke, I thought was good, not great. This is probably the first movie I've ever seen with her in it. I'd never seen um, any Sudden of the Impact. Other. Never saw Sudden Impact. Um, well, it's coming up next year. So you're in. No, wait, this year. It's 83. It's 83. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, so that'll be two. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of her some of her lines weren't delivered the best, but you know. Yeah. She's again, different. And yeah. I think that's why my mom uh, mentioned her when you know I I heard about it first. You know, back in the day, I, I think she had a weird either didn't like her or just could kind of like take her or leave her. Um, but I, I think it was a thing. Like I said, he was starting to put her in a handful of his movies just because they were a item. I don't know if they were, I don't know when they officially started dating, if they were together when this came out or what, but they um, were dating. Yeah. I looked, at the, at I the time. Was, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't know when it actually happened, but uh, you know, so she, yeah, she's different. She's a different kind of actress, but she's not much different in sudden impact. So if you didn't love her in, you know, the gauntlet, it's not like five yeah. years later or six years later, she all of a sudden, you know, blossoms into something completely different. So I think that's just her, her style. I used to think she was kind of weird and shrill and, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of scary, pointy face, especially when she gets, you know, upset or, or whatever. And I, I think it works yeah. for her. I'm not, I'm not saying that as a insult. I think that's just like her, yeah. her thing. And uh, I, I think she, I think it works well, at least looking back, but you're right. When I was a kid or, or when I first kind of saw her, I was like, Whoa, this is a, kind of a weird yeah she's different like you said i I didn't mind her at all in this movie there was just a couple lines but she i thought she she her and clint obviously have good chemistry and and this this movie is a good example of it um the only other the only other thing you know that i would would criticize is is the ending but we'll get around to that we'll talk about that when we get to that point so uh, well, it was directed by Clint Eastwood, uh, as we said, uh, only a few years into, but you know, like I said, already, he's kind of firmly already sort of established this, uh, his career of actor director. So pretty much everything from, I don't know, maybe High Plains Drifter or something forward is, is a Clint Eastwood directed by a Clint Eastwood movie. And there's a few exceptions in there. There's in the line of fire. I can think of off the top of my head. Um, one of the Dirty Harry movies after this is not directed by him. He made a movie a decade ago or so called Trouble with the Curb, where he let his uh, his longtime uh, director of photography or somebody you know directed, and I think he essentially just did it as a favor to him. To but you know you can really only point to you know 
less than 10 other movies in in the next 40 years where he was not or he the, didn't direct it the director. yeah yeah so and and it shows i mean this movie like we were saying the the style and, and tone and everything about it is him through through the 90s you know until maybe he's starting to get some bigger budgets and bigger stars and you know things like that um but this this is definitely his right in that wheelhouse and template of, of what he would do for next couple decades the other thing i thought was interesting about it it was released on december 21st of 1977 so we're talking christmas time um by his home studio warner brothers where um, he made his el paso production company home uh and the thing i noticed as a kid warner brothers would do uh in releasing action movies around christmas time is like counter programming so you had tango and cash in 89 um, there's mm-hmm. the last Boy Scout '91. Those all came out in late December, and then the Rookie it was it was '90, and that was with Clint. And I didn't I didn't know the trend went back as far as the '70s. Um, I meant to kind of do a deeper dive into it, but I, I just never got around to it. So I don't know how many years Warner Brothers did this, and I don't know how far back it it went. Um, but it's definitely a thing, um, and it doesn't always work. This film was a hit, and I, I guess I'm jumping the gun here and going into the box office, but. It made $35.4 million in, in $77 wow. on a $5.5 million budget. So today that would put it over easily $100 million in terms of tickets sold um, off of off a $5.5 million budget. So that's that's impressive. But the other three I mentioned are all considered kind of underperformers, even though Tango Cash and Last Boy Scout and the Rookie are all, you know, kind of fan favorites now at this point, And everybody sort of regards them fairly well if not you know i yeah. think a lot of people think tango and cash and last boy scout particularly are you know kind of cult classics or classics of the genre but um but you know this is what clint does he makes a movie relatively cheap and, and makes the studio five or in some cases ten times the budget um doesn't always work he's had a share of money losers but you know when they hit you get a unforgiven or a million dollar baby or gran torino or the mule american sniper did damn near 400 million dollars uh, you know on, I, I don't know what that the budget was but even if it was 100 million yeah. which i'm sure it wasn't um you know you're talking talking massive profit so and that's kind of the reason they they let him sort of write his own ticket and uh, so it's just funny to see that trend go back you know this this far this and, far uh, yeah yeah not just for clint but for warner brothers you know putting a movie like this or, or one of his out at that at that time of year um you mentioned the camera moves and and everything uh that's that's one thing i noticed that that first scene where uh eastwood and uh pat hingle i guess we should let me set it up a little bit so so eastwood's ben shockley he's this cop he's kind of an alcoholic uh, he's his partner uh played by pat hingle he Oh, that's another thing about this movie. They he's used a lot of the guys in here. There's a lot of familiar faces that you'll see in all of Eastwood's kind of '70s and '80s movies, and Pat Hingle's one of them. He's also in Sudden Impact, I think. So when we get around to that one, you'll. you'll oh, see I never him knew again. that. But yeah, so he plays his partner. He's kind of more on a on a desk job, and and you know he's been promoted, and Eastwood's sort of been held back because of his drinking, but he you know gets him to transport this prisoner uh from they're going from what is it phoenix Phoenix? to vegas yeah or vegas to phoenix she's she's in vegas and he has to go get her there they gotta bring her to phoenix okay so uh, so that's that's the assignment he gives him but there's this scene where they're they're talking and and walking and uh that eastwood has has this sort of panning 
camera that that goes over them and around them and i thought it was a a really cool move for a a young you know not first time director he's directed a handful by this point but um you know i I thought it it showed some real chops uh just just right there right there at the beginning of of what he he could do and it's another one of those movies where the partners are like hey you know we've been through we've been through so much and we've been through some doors together haven't we and (laughs) you know i I think (laughs) I think that sort of camaraderie and and all that stuff is was was pretty good. So the the setup of this movie immediately, both the way Eastwood films it, um, and the the kind of relationship with Pat Hingle and just setting the tone for the type of movie this is going to be. I think I think Eastwood does a really good job with with all that stuff. So you know, yeah, I I I really enjoyed the um that kind of tracking shot. Like you said, that's <laughs> it's very aesthetically pleasing. It's it looks cool. It uh... I'm 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 a fan of that of that style of directing. Yeah, I don't know why it it jumped out at me. It's not exactly like it's anything show-offy. Special, anything, right? But, right, exactly. Yeah. But I think when you're watching it sort of critically and you're you're sort of like, okay, this is a early Eastwood directing movie, you know, let's see what this guy can do and um mm-hmm. I, I I appreciated that. And we you were talking a little bit about the the helicopter that's chasing them and um you know, the, the fight on the train and, and some of that stuff. And I, I sort of appreciated that too, because I was sitting here thinking like, okay, this is 1977, a fairly low budget movie. Uh, you know, they, they do a lot with that. I mean, nowadays it would be considered completely pedestrian and, you know, we're not even worthy right. of TV stuff, but yeah, uh, the, I don't know. I, 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 it's hard to explain without seeing it, but I think it's, it's handled really well. Um, the funny thing about all that is there's this jazzy score that plays over it, which is another <laughs> Eastwood trope or, or soon to be Eastwood trope. But it's just it's funny how that's the the music he chooses to <laughs> during an, an intense chase. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's this that so him and Sandra Locker on a on a motorcycle trying to evade a helicopter shooting at him, and and the way uh, <laughs> the way Eastwood frames it is by having this sort of saxophone. Um, piano <laughs> i don't know yeah just, just type score playing over it's sort of a funny little uh, little thing about about this movie that makes it stand yeah. out as as a very clint clint film so <laughs> so anyway he's got to go pick up this uh witness and uh they they the name's gus gus o'malley malley malley i think it is yep yeah he assumes it's a guy it turns out to not be it turns out to be sandra Locke, and you know of course she's a, a bit of a spitfire and then this leads to a great line, which is uh, what the the guard at the prison, I think, says, what did, what did you think of her? And he goes, well, on a scale of one to ten, I rate her a two, but that's only because I've never seen a one before. <laughs> I just, that's a great line. Seriously. <laughs> and that's that's one line I do remember from when I was I, I kind of forgot about it until it happened, but yeah. I was I was happy to to hear it again he's got a couple in here i don't know if i wrote any of the other ones down but there there's a few a few good ones but <laughs> um yeah so we get sandra Locke, and uh you know she's dressed in her prison duds and she's doing everything she can to sort of you know piss clint off or um uh, he he first meets her by she i guess she drank coffee and cigarettes and that's a trick to make her sick so she doesn't have to yeah even though she didn't seem very sick i, I don't know like, like once they yeah. figure out that's what she, she goes, oh, I'm sick. And he goes, what's wrong with her? And then they're like, oh, we don't know. And then somebody discovers the 
or I think Clint discovers the, the coffee and cigarettes. He goes, oh, it's an old army trick. And then she goes, oh, you bastard, you found me out. And then she seems perfectly fine the rest of the time. So <laughs> she could have just pretended to be sick, I guess. But. Right. <laughs> Probably pull it off better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> or or the, the movie should have showed her actually be be sick. But yeah. um, she's a Vegas prostitute, I guess. And the, uh, the idea is she saw something she shouldn't have and she had some dirt on some guys. And then, uh, you know, they want want her dead before she reaches the, the courthouse. And hence um, the, the cops on Eastwood's own own crew turn out to be crooked. And they try to kind of stop them at every move they make between um, Phoenix and, and Las Vegas to so yeah that's the plot in a nutshell but but yeah there's some goofy scene i don't want to say goofy they're, they're they're fine scenes but there's some crazy scenes in in here uh including that train scene which is not something that would probably be shot today um <laughs> no they would not there's a yeah. uh you got clint eastwood slapping sandra Locke in the face within about 30 seconds of meeting her you got mm-hmm. a uh a scene where the where the cops shoot the shit out of Sandra Locke's house and I mean they literally shoot it so much the house collapses (laughs) yeah I thought it was great Um, well uh, I was going to mention this uh, later but I'll I'll give you a little uh, background on that Um, so it was filmed in Phoenix and Arizona, uh, or, or sorry, in Phoenix, Arizona and Las Vegas, uh, as well as in nearby uh, deserts of, of both states. The set for the house scene was built uh, at a cost of $250,000 and included 7,000 drilled holes that would include explosive squibs for its demolition. The helicopter chase scene included a helicopter that is built without an engine for the crash sequence. To simulate the gunshots from the gauntlet officers at the end of the film, the bus they were in was blasted with 8,000 squibs. From the total budget of 5.5 million, 1 million was spent on the various action sequences. So (laughs) they put a lot of time and effort into all of that stuff. Um, Yeah. And then while we're on the production notes, uh, the film was originally set to star Marlon Brando and Barbara Streisand. Brando withdrew and was replaced by Steve McQueen. Uh, And then the differences between McQueen and Streisand ultimately led to their joint departure in favor of Eastwood and Locke. So uh, they, they wanted to turn the the role of Ben Shockley into more of a down and out dirty Harry patrol once Eastwood came aboard. So that's why it's kind of this mix of dirty Harry, but also alcoholic cop. So the writers had a script and were trying to have it be, a, you know, Brando, then McQueen. And then, yeah, McQueen. I don't know what the original script looked like or what, how, how the Shockley character was initially supposed to be. But it sounded like they sort of retrofitted a little bit to fit Eastwood's strengths and, and all that. Yeah. So, uh, which, you know, I mean, Eastwood's the guy directing, so it's not hard to <laughs> play it however you want anyway. I mean, I, I'm sure it would have looked yeah. something like this, even if they didn't change anything but but yeah i thought it was interesting the the amount of you know time and effort and work that went into some of those action sequences because they are pretty cool the whatever you think of the ending and and like you said we'll get to it but um the on a technical level what they had to do to to make that house collapse that helicopter chase the the bus all that stuff in 1977 is you know pretty impressive and and again especially for a, a director who's still ostensibly cutting his teeth the way 
you know, Eastwood would. So yeah. <clears throat> Play Misty for me, nineteen seventy one. Then okay, High 71. Plains Drifter in seventy three. Right. Did a movie called two. Breezy in seventy three. Okay. Um you directed that one? The, yeah. And okay. then the Iger Sanction in seventy five. Yeah. Outlaw Josie Wales in seventy six. And then the Gauntlet in seventy six. So this is his so, sixth, fifth? This is his sixth? this is his fifth fifth film. Fifth. No, I'm sorry, fifth sixth film. Sixth, yeah. Sixth film in five years, though. So yeah. that's pretty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah, crazy. I mean, yeah, and in between yeah, there, I mean, he's still making other movies. I mean, you know, the, right. there there were Dirty Harry movies in between there. There were westerns in between there. I mean, just yeah. insanely prolific. Yeah. So I don't know what else about this movie. Uh, we can go through the plot, but I mean, that's that's essentially it. They've they're trying to make it however they can. Uh, they 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 that house that we talked about dilapidates. They crawl through she's got some kind of trap door thing that leads to a sewer and they get out through that they have to hijack these bikes from these bikers um the bikers they run into on a train after the helicopter chase that we mentioned and they, they escape that they get onto this train the bikers eastwood fucked with and stole their bike from or on the train there's kind of an ugly scene where they i mean i guess it's rape i mean she yeah <laughs> They they start beating up on Clint and she the way she distracts him is by taking her shirt off and saying hey you bacho assholes what's wrong you want to you know play with this yeah. guy instead of me or something and that's enough to distract him and they kind of start groping her or whatnot but before it goes too far Eastwood you know breaks free and, and saves her and everything so beats them all <laughs> up throws them off the train yeah yeah I mean that's that's probably the one scene that I think would stand out for most people watching this movie watching now. it today uh, yeah. yeah yeah or if you see it as a kid and you're younger and you don't see it for 20 years i think that's something that might sort of stick with you yeah, um, a little jarring <laughs> yeah uh but i mean there's there's a good cat and mouse game going on here where he's just trying to figure out who he can trust and who he can't the, the the other scene that's kind of un pc and gross and whatever is they get into this car with a with a highway patrolman who uh is <laughs> i'm trying to think how this scene starts so they i think that's when they escape the house um they escape the house and they spot him outside like a dairy queen type place uh right eastwood instantly puts the gun to his head and tells him to drive so yeah i thought so they that, get into the uh, car with the cop and yeah and now that guy's a guy too he's a yeah, he's an Eastwood yeah. guy. He's been in some other stuff. Um, yeah, he is just sitting there saying shit like, oh, why don't you tell me some stories about, you know, what a whore you are or <laughs> whatever. Oh, he's God. just one of these yeah. southern punk-ass cops. And and then he's saying shit to Eastwood like, why don't we both just, uh, you know, take a ride on her and, you know, whatever. We'll... <laughs> I, I don't even know what that guy's endgame is. It's another thing that's really hard to wrap your head around 40 years later, even 20 years later, growing up as kids. Like, I never would have thought in a million years that there's this idea that, it, you know, if you're a cop and even if you're a, a crooked shitbag, you can just, you know, rape some chick with your partner or, or yeah. whatever you want to call Eastwood in this scenario, just some guy you found, and then uh, toss her in prison and you guys can both just pretend it never even happened. And, you know, that kind of thing. That's just <laughs> nuts, nuts you know, to me, you know. <laughs> I did I did kind of like that scene uh, in, the, in the sense that, you know, 
this cop's talking a lot of shit to Sandra Locke and you know Eastwood keeps telling him to shut up and drive and eventually Sandra Locke's like no let him talk and then he gets yeah. done saying all his things and then she just like just unloads on know, him yeah unloads on him and to the point that he ends up like screaming and trying to run the car off the road because he's so pissed yeah. off so yeah she's cool. great in that scene i the, the the part you're referring to though is the thing that sort of negates it for me like she's like she's like oh what what would you do if your wife found out you masturbated or something? He's like, yeah. Ah! He like slams the brakes and damn near flips the car over and all this shit. Like, yeah, really? Like that's the, <laughs> this guy's like, he calls her a clit. I think he calls yeah. her a clit. Yeah. He's talking yeah. all this like horrible sexual shit to her. He basically comes in his pants while he's like saying, what do you do with, uh, you know, those other little whores that you hang around with and stuff. And then she yeah. like just drops the the word masturbation or or insinuates that his wife might find out and he damn near yeah. loses his mind. <laughs> that was just insane. And it's nobody's fault. That's the way the script's written, or it's a means to an end just to get that scene through or whatever. I like I get it, but it just seems like yeah. such a <laughs> such an overreaction on this. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he's obviously trying to play the good Christian cop who's a family man mm. and blah blah blah. But really, in reality, without fucking Pornhub and whatever else, he's probably all pent up and you know just jerking <laughs> off to whatever dumb magazines he can hide like out in the fucking chicken coop or whatever this you know <laughs> like, yeah. just, he's one of those dudes he's like a good old boy who you know and <laughs> i don't know but it, at any rate it's it's just insane that that would be the thing that would totally flip him over the edge but <laughs> so anyway they, they cut loose of that guy um oh well no they don't cut loose of that guy they she finally says to eastwood in the car She's like, what, what do you need to figure this out? She's like, they, you keep calling uh, home to your 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 precinct. Partner. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or well, your captain. Oh, to and, the captain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and saying what's going on. And these guys keep showing up. And now we're about to meet them out in the middle of nowhere at the border of, uh, you know, Arizona and Nevada. And you're just going to trust this. And so Eastwood thinks for a minute and he goes, oh, okay, maybe that makes some sense, which <laughs> again, this movie paints Eastwood as kind of a dumbass, which I, I think is a, a good thing, you know, like we've all figured this yeah. out already. She's figured this out already. It's it's funny yeah. that he's the, and, and I like that. And I like Eastwood did that and I like he let himself be that and be that's vulnerable. great. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, so she says this and he goes, okay, so they they decide to get out of the car, you know, however however far away and they tell the guy to drive up and, and you know meet the guys and he's like oh i'm gonna fucking tell him exactly what you motherfuckers did or whatever and then he, he goes speeding off and of course the cops that are waiting for them blow that guy to hell thinking eastwood and blocker <laughs> in the car um yeah. that leads them to sleeping in the desert and then of course they kind of bicker a little but they're actually sort of bonding as you know these things go and then that's when the bikers show up um and then eastwood and that's where he finds out that that Blacklock or Blakelock or whatever. Blakelock, yeah. Yeah, is the one who who she was supposed to testify against or whatever. Right, so the, the captain, Blakelock, she mentions in an earlier scene, she said, I, I don't know the guy's name or, you know, who he is, but yeah, she she kind of describes him to Eastwood as being, you know, creepy and uh, he's, he's super clean cut has a voice that sounds like you know it's coming out of a tunnel or something i forget how she actually phrases it and yeah this is where eastwood starts putting it together that it it might be blake lock and blake lock 
for his part chose Eastwood because he thinks he's a piece of shit alcoholic and a bum and all this other stuff and so Eastwood calls his partner uh Pat Hingle tells him says I think uh you know it's it's Blakelock his partner tries to help him and then it, it all turns into a huge kerfuffle when they finally get back into Phoenix and then that's when they take this bus uh, I don't want to say hostage they just it, outfit it with a bunch of um, iron and rebar and stuff and they decide yeah. they're going to ride into the into the courthouse in that because um, they know there's going to be a bunch of cops waiting to stop them and sure enough there's I don't, I don't know how many are hundreds. And, and like I said, in the right. thing I read, they empty, what was it? 8,000 rounds of yeah. squibs yeah. or something into them. Yeah. Just insane. So. Like I was wondering how they were doing that at first. Like, were they really shooting a bus up? Or, and then I was like, Oh, that's gotta be special effects. But you don't, even in 77, you didn't see that kind of like, that kind of stuff very often in movies uh, yeah in terms of yeah stuff like bonnie and clyde where they would shoot up that car you know stuff yeah. like that but this is yeah it, it's pretty pretty impressive for that that all said um i think the movie ends rather abruptly and i i don't know if the the bus is the most exciting way to go out on but you said you no, had thoughts. I, what were? Yeah, what were... yeah. Well, I mean, so obviously we have we have the insane bus shooting, and then they get out, and all of a sudden the cops see them and lower their guns, kind of, kind of unexplained, inexplicably. Uh, that's that. That's not even my biggest issue with with it is when when they finally get right up to the to the courthouse and Blake Lock comes out and is freaking out because they're uh you know he realizes the the gig is up yeah and he, he there's a hundred cops surrounding them the and the the district yeah. attorney lock and eastwood and blake lock they're they're all surra- kind of surrounding in a circle and he grabs a cop's gun and starts uh, and Eastwood puts a gun to the DAs, and all the cops are still sitting there doing nothing. He shoots, he shoots the DA, and uh, and apparently Eastwood, and then he falls over, and Locke grabs the gun, still you know, at at, at pretty close range with with people right, right there around him. Yeah, shoots him and kills him, and like none of the cops move at all. Like maybe get out of the way when there's shooting going on, or at least maybe <clears throat> react to try and save some people. Right. Uh, it was, it was, it was a little silly. Uh, yeah. and the way, you know, many, I mean, I, I 100% but... agree. This movie had no idea how it wanted to end or, or maybe it did. And they were like, we need something either quicker or more definitive or more that the audience is going to go yay or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's a, it's a pretty bad ending to what was already a, a you know, solid movie up to that point. I, right. I feel like the right. ending shaves a good half star, if not full star off this thing it it just uh, i don't know and then it's in true true eastwood fashion and uh bronson and uh, movies of this day it just that happens and then roll credits you know roll there's credits. no yep. yeah no catharsis no you know nothing i'm not saying we need to see eastwood and Locke walk off into the sunset or anything like that yeah, i just it, it seems like these movies where as long as as soon as the bad guy dies we can just pan up and fade to black and you know, tell you who was all in this movie, and it's just yep. it, it's such a 
I don't know. It's just it, it's it's abrupt. I, I I don't know if we're yeah. used to a different sort of way things end now. But uh, even as a kid, I always thought these things were weird. Although I will say, at least it doesn't fuck around. It just it does its thing. It gets out of dodge, and you don't have to mm-hmm. sit there and have this movie that's just kind of a silly action thriller, and then just there for the visceral thrills and all that try to pretend that it's something more and tack on another 10 minutes or something so i guess that makes sense but yeah i don't know i don't know what was up with that ending why why would blake lock do that you know it's just it doesn't make any sense yeah he's putting himself right out there as as now he's definitely going to at least before he could get a lawyer and argue whatever and right uh, you know say i didn't do that or i wasn't the guy but instead he's like oh they're here i'm gonna fucking shoot them and in front of all these cops and all these witnesses and yeah. <laughs> right. It's his word against it's his word against theirs. You know, he could. Yeah. He could easily. Right. Have, yeah. I've tried tried something. You know, doing that isn't going to result. Something. Yeah. Anything. Did all that nasty shit to her. She was talking about. She said something about him like putting a gun in her pussy and jerking off. Yeah. Behind and yep. all that. So. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she she would know him. She would probably want some sort of revenge on him. But even so, you got all these cops sitting around there, guns drawn. Seems a little weird. And and also, they don't know up to this point that he's dirty or, or anything. Uh, you know, right. for, for her to shoot a police captain, you think would result in, or lieutenant, I think he's a lieutenant, yeah. but whatever he is. <laughs> Just you think in front of all of his officers, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not to mention all that chaos and confusion. Nobody knows what's going on. These two weirdos just drove up in a bus and. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> crashed through all these cops and. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh... Uh, that said, I, I I still enjoyed the movie. I'd watch it again. I I liked I liked a lot about it. I liked Pat Hingle. I thought he was a a, a good a good character and a. A good standby, the old standby partner who's inevitably going to get blasted at some point. Yeah, unfortunately, you know he's going to (laughs) die. Right. Um, Yeah, like I said, too, I I like how Eastwood was, you know, just kind of daft and oblivious in this. Uh, You know, some of that might be because the character is supposed to be a a drinker, but I think cops in real life would be no wiser about dealing with any of this stuff. When you think back to being a kid and the cops we knew from, like... uh, you know, grade school or, or say like our dare program or, or whatever. I mean, if you can imagine yeah. them in some scenario like this, they wouldn't know what the fuck they're doing. You know, we're, we're used to seeing these cops that are always dirty, Harry and John McLean and, and whatever, but your, your average cop in this, uh, they're, they're not going to know how to handle some crazy conspiracy. And, you know, if anything, this movie is maybe more realistic in, in the fact that you know, a lot of these guys are, they're, they're not going to be the, the big hero they're going to be those the extras in the movie that get killed immediately in their you know uniforms and yeah you know, or, or or just or just nothing nothing will happen and they won't be part of anything and wouldn't know how to deal with any of this and right that's just i i thought it was i thought it was a little interesting or unique to, to have a cop like that i mean the the drunken redeemable cop trope is nothing new that's a thing that you know has been in movies forever but I, I did yeah. like seeing somebody of Eastwood's stature, especially after what three Dirty Harry movies at this point, um, do something I think so, like yeah. this. I, I, I thought it Magnum was Magnum Force, Dirty Harry, and The Enforcer was probably Enforcer, a year okay. before this or so. So yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, so I thought that was all good. And then um, you know the reviews, they're mixed. There, there's good and bad, and I I kind of agree with. All of them. Ebert uh, gave it three out of four. Called it classic Clint, fast, furious, and funny. 
tells a cheerfully preposterous story with great energy and lots of style. Nobody seems more at home in this sort of action movie than Eastwood. I would agree with that 100%. Uh, To the um, contrary, (laughs) you got uh, Gene Siskel, who said he gave it one and a half stars out of four. And so this is a very stupid movie. Supposedly, it's all meant to be good fun. And true, the script does have dialogue of a comic book, but there's not one bit of wit in the film. Um, yeah, I, you know, I agree. I think, I think there's witty lines and, and some, you know, funny stuff or whatever. But yeah, they're, they're, neither one of them is wrong. You can come down on either right. side of this or, or right in the middle. It's just, it's, it's a dumb kind of preposterous, doesn't make a lot of sense movie. But it's also, it's fun and, and Eastwood alone kind of just redeems it and that's the thing i said about eastwood forever you know even in his worst movies he's always solid as fuck like it's rare that i I can't even think of one but uh, but even if there is one or two it's rare that eastwood is bad in anything you know he's always clint he's always solid and his presence or whatever you want to call it does a lot more for some of the movies he's in than they do for him you know you look at some shit like any which way but loose or pink cadillac or some of these just throwaway ones he's he gets out of them unscathed somehow and, and he makes them watchable just all by himself, even if everything around him is just fucking terrible. So <laughs> not that I this is a terrible movie, Cadillac. but right. yeah, it's not great, but not great. the biggest thing I remember about pink Cadillac was that's the first time I saw the trailer for uh Batman in a theater. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like, it came out in 88 or something sometime before Batman. And it was the, they had the trailer in front of it. So, that's the the biggest thing I remember about that one. But starring Pat Hingle, full circle. Yeah. Full circle. <laughs> I was gonna mention what he was in, and I didn't. I forgot about it. But uh, some other yeah, reviews. Uh, New York Times uh, said it's a movie without a single thought in its head, but its action sequences are so ferociously staged that it's impossible not to pay attention most of the time. Variety, at the very least, Eastwood periodically tries something different, and if the price of that is a run of formula programmers let it be um newsweek you don't believe a minute of it but at the end of the quest it's hard not to chuckle and cheer unclear whether that's a a criticism or a recommendation but (laughs) (laughs) either way yes agreed on all counts so so yeah Yeah. i I think it's a it's a silly movie but a a effective effective one for sure so very entertaining um all right i remember the days of this podcast when i go through and talk about what other movies were opening and all that i didn't i didn't do any of that so sorry i gotta get back on actually doing some research before we do this stuff but um anyway i remember when 16 blocks came out that um, i wrote a little review in um uh on amazon or something i used to do that just for the hell of it if i had like thoughts i wanted to throw down because they had like they still have it but you know where you could can write reviews of of stuff um and i remember saying something like uh it reminded me of the gauntlet in in that not only is it about kind of a drunken over the hill burnout cop trying to get a witness from one place to another but even at at the end of all that it takes place on a bus and one of the cool things about it too was there was a poster for 16 blocks the original theatrical poster aped some of these 70s kind of uh like Lee Marvin, like Point Blank, and some of these sort of style posters and everything. And I was super disappointed when the DVD came out and they changed it to this sort of dumb, 
typical thing where it's like just people's heads and there's like a hand with a gun that you can tell isn't even willis's hand and it's not even the gun he used in the movie and stuff like that yeah. it's just so dumb but anyway i i thought i thought when i originally saw 16 blocks and when i saw the poster for it and thought of what they were trying to do i was like oh this is going to be a great cool throwback and, and the movie kind of is and we'll get into it but i think it's kind of shitty how they decided to sort of uh, retrofit how they decided to sell that movie to the masses when um, it wasn't a huge hit which we'll talk about but they obviously thought they could do better by trying to make it look like some modern uh, you know whatever tough guy thriller and and the movie's just not that at all and right uh, that's how they tried to market it back in the day well not necessarily but when when i don't think it did well in theaters like i said then they changed the the poster they changed the cover mm-hmm. for the dvd they changed you know just just how they were trying to sell it i think they were trying to make it look yeah. more uh, uh modern and cool than it was when i think it was supposed to be something that was kind of like a throwback to say you know, French connection or and I'm not saying the movie's on that level or, or it's even about the same things, but I, I think it has a distinct Just a grittiness. Yeah. A gritty yeah. New York sort of seventies mm-hmm. cop pot boiler sensibility is what I, what yeah. that movie is. And I think that's what they tried to market it as. And it wasn't entirely successful. And they sort of put all that by the wayside when they, uh, when it when it came out on DVD and all that stuff, but um, anyway, Sixteen Blocks I think is a great movie uh, directed by Richard Donner, starring Bruce Willis. He's looking good, uh, but he looks terrible. But he looks good looking terrible. If that makes sense. Yes, it so does. They do a really good job on on Bruce in this movie, and and Bruce is somebody who's played the alcoholic cop umpteen times, uh, but this is the first time where you know he. he really looks like it his eyes are bloodshot the his his face is kind of like sort of hangs on him yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) skin's a little wrinkly and um his his hair even i don't know if he's wearing some sort of hair piece or or what it is or if he actually grew his hair out but it's it looks like you know just straw in his head and stuff and uh, he's sweaty and uh yeah you know it, it Joe Hallam back in the last Boy Scout is an alcoholic and stuff, and he's got stubble and all that. But this guy is a mile away from that, you know. There, there's the the cool alcoholic, and then there's the Jack Mosley, the character he's playing in yeah. Sixteen Blocks. And I thought I thought it was a really good performance on Willis's part. So, uh, but anyway, we'll get into it. But it, you you said you never saw it before. You you don't yeah. really know why, but um, right, yeah, I. I... I don't know why I didn't see it because I've always always been a a big Willis fan and I'm, I'm I'm glad I saw it because these are the kind of these are the kind of movies that reinforce what I think of him and that that he's a a well-rounded actor. Yes, he's a cop in this movie again, but it's right. that's not really you, you know, he's good at playing a cop, but he's also really good at vulnerability. He's good at different kinds of, you know, he's not a like you said, he's not Joe Hollenbeck in this. He's not a badass with with a bunch of cool lines and quips right. and stuff. He's just he, he, there's a lot of there's a lot of times where most deaf is talking and talking and he doesn't even he doesn't even react or anything. He's not even listening. Like he's just <laughs> trying to figure out what he needs to do. Like he's very yeah. quiet and 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 reserved and and obviously depressed and you know just. Uh, dealing with his own demons along with dealing with this insane situation he's found himself in. Yeah. I, um, uh, I, I thought it was a really good performance and 
super underrated in terms of his sort of later career stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's directed by Richard Donner, uh, and, and he's sort of in his kind of journeyman, but not really, period. I mean, outside of Superman, the Lethal Weapon movies, and Goonies, um, he kind of just, he's not like one of these directors who, you know, a studio just hires for his ability to make uh, an action movie or, or whatever. I think he always sort of puts a stamp on it, and I think he's he kind of worked exclusively for Warner Brothers, almost a lot like um, Clint Eastwood. And I, I assume he got to kind of pick and choose projects and he chose stuff like this and assassins and, um, you know, forever young and Maverick and conspiracy theory. Those were all with Mel Gibson. So even though he's sort of making these movies where you think like, Oh, well, that's just sort of a random goofy action comedy or a studio action comedy or, or whatever, you can tell it, it's, it's with people he wants to work with. It's with themes he wants to work with. He always sort of puts his stamp on these movies. There's a lot of things he, he puts in especially lethal weapon movies where um he kind of puts his politics in there there's like pro-choice stuff everywhere and end apartheid stuff everywhere and yeah and things like that so but but outside of you know superman and lethal weapon and, and goonies it's not exactly like you know he's he, he's not a um like a robert zemeckis or a steven spielberg or somebody like that even though he works with those guys on a lot of things they were all part of the whole tales from the crypt thing and a lot of stuff on hbo uh but it, but even so he he still is got his sort of stable of actors and you know people he works with a lot like mel gibson for instance um so his his one big misfire before uh 16 blocks was mostly this forgotten sci-fi flick with paul walker called timeline which i don't know if you ever saw that but that was oh gosh no 2001 yeah and and you know it it was for a different studio and it it wasn't assuming that was his one true sort of director for hire job or or paycheck thing or or whatever but but anyway he he had that and then he he finally kind of got back to basics with with this and willis and going back to warner brothers and all that and unfortunately the the movie wasn't a huge hit or anything um, it, it didn't embarrass itself and it actually did really well on video and I, I think it has a high like um audience score and stuff like that but i i just don't think it was sold properly at the time but um this is this is another you know feather in his cap we talked about assassins a, a month or so ago and you know that was kind of didn't do very well either sort of underrated um but you watch it now and you just go man this guy really knows how to make a movie and uh, this this for sure is one of those there's a scene right at the beginning where willis uh shoots a guy who's trying to go after most deaf and you think he's just going to be a the, the way it's shot is the guy approaches most deaf puts a gun on him. Willis is in the store buying some booze, uh, completely oblivious to what's going on. The gun comes out. The gun shoots the guy's head. It's a black guy, so the guy's head hits the window. You think it's most deaf getting shot, but really, you pull back and you see it's Willis shot the guy, and the guy's head went into the, the windshield yeah. after getting shot. <laughs> really um, liked that, that scene. That was yeah. cool. Now, it's a little cliche to just go like, oh, Willis saved the day or whatever, uh, or, you know, the drunk guy, whatever. But the way that's shot and done is so, uh, it's it's like masterful. And there's a lot of shots like that where he really knows how to shoot people's hands doing things or or guns or loading guns or uh, people figuring things out. And then then when there is action, it's not just a, like, kerfuffle of images and stuff. It's it's like, it's it's well shot, well staged. He's a a great director so that's that's my long-winded way of saying richard donner directs the shit out of this thing 
much like yes, he does. Assassins and, and Lethal Weapon. Even for a movie that's not, it's not a huge action movie. You know, there's only a handful of you know action scenes and shootouts and stuff, but uh, um, it's it's constantly suspenseful and entertaining, and he keeps the urgency going. And um, and it's also to most Deaf and Willis's credit too, because they do a really good job selling yeah, they all do. This, this drama and everything. So I wasn't sure how I was gonna feel about most Deaf when you when you first meet him. Like I said, he's just he talks and he does that throughout yeah. the whole movie, but obviously, and in that nasally whiny yes. sort of with the New York accent, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I remember when I first saw this, that was my main thing. I was like, oh man, are we gonna? I, I saw it in the theater and um, I, I remember liking it, but I, I remember my one big, not misgiving, but kind of like I don't know if that worked for me was most deaf, and and I thought he was good in it, performance wise, but his his voice in this was something that I really had to. Yeah, get used to. Um, he eventually won me over, but it it took a while. I was like, oh boy, <laughs> I don't know about all this. But. According to uh, Wikipedia, Bruce Bruce Willis wanted Ludacris to play that part. <laughs> I don't really. I don't know how Bruce. I don't know if Bruce was like an executive producer, if that was just his suggestion or what. But uh, yeah, I yeah. saw that little note on on Wikipedia about the movie. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. This was sort of in that stage of his career where he, his brother David Willis would produce a lot of his stuff. Um, so when you go back and watch things like The Whole Nine Yards and all this other, it's there's always David Willis on there. Yeah, so I don't think I, I ever realized that. Also, I believe this was uh, Donner's last film, major major film. Um, I, I think it was his last he... film. Period. Yeah, I don't know when he passed, but uh... well, he died a couple of years ago, so it was you know probably 15 years after this movie. But I just don't think okay. he really did anything after this. But yeah, it's unfortunate they were set. They were set to do um, Lethal Weapon Five at some point. I, I guess it was like all kind of in motion, and then uh, he he died before it could really get off the ground. Which okay. I don't I don't know how I feel about that as much as I love the Lethal Weapon movies. I feel like now is probably not the time to try to. <laughs> <laughs> get back to that you know yeah um some whispers about gibson directing yeah a, exactly when i think a gibson's really... a, a great uh you know director especially Absolutely. in terms of action and so i think he would do fine with it i just i think you know they're, they're just way too old at this point i think there's not really a great reason to do it outside of just money and, and marketing and stuff. And then also on top of that, the fourth one ended it pretty definitively. You know, the, the whole yeah. uh, end credits of that is like a flipping through a family album and revisiting pictures from the whole mm. cast and crew and the, and the older movies and everything. It's like, if ever a movie put a, just a cherry on top of things. Yeah, exactly. It was they that did not one. need to revisit it. Right. Even and though there's always money to be made, they did. Yeah, not true, to... and and you know I, I'll be the the first one there on opening weekend if they ever do it, and and hoping yeah. and that they they can pull it off. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It it doesn't seem like a smart idea at this point <laughs> by any means. Right. But, um. Yeah. So you know Willis, uh, he he plays this alcoholic cop, Jack Mosley. That that opening scene is pretty good, where these. Uh, the SWAT team goes busting into this apartment, tears it apart, and then they, they're done with everything they're going to do. And then Willis kind of wanders in and they say, you know, hey, just just sit here and wait for, you know, yeah. so-and-so to show up or whatever. Don't touch anything. <laughs> yeah. And so he just yeah. goes and looks through their cabinets, grabs a, a whatever bottle of whatever he can find, starts drinking and pulls out his newspaper and just kind of sits there. And that's just sort of the 
cop he's become now, you know, and and he yeah. he really looks the part. I, I'm assuming his his gut is fake, you know, and he's got this little paunchy belly and and whatnot because. Yeah. Willis was never really all that out of shape, although it wouldn't be hard to gain those few pounds, I guess, and then take them off. But uh, but the rest of it, you know, his face, his hair, his eyes, his mustache, the unshaven, you know, he he, he not only looks like an alcoholic cop, but he, he looks like a cop. You know, he looks like a yeah. a guy, just some blue collar over the hill schlub you'd, you'd know or see any day at a, you know, working in a car lot or something like that. They did a, a really good job with you know, making him look the way he does in this. Um, and, and, you know, he, he's completely unglamorous, which is kind of crazy for an aging action star who at, at the time, theoretically, should have been uh, at the point in his career where he's trying to convince people he's still got it. You know, uh, you right. got your Schwarzeneggers and your Stallones and they're like, well, we're getting older. We got to, you know, continue to show how badass we are. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's cool that Willis doesn't, didn't care about that. And he would take some of these roles and, uh, and he gets a lot of shit for being one of these stars who's got all these vanity projects and he's cocky and conceited and all that. But he he was always kind of fearless and, uh, uh, you know, taking some of these these roles that made him look less than uh, any of that stuff, you know. So I like that about him. Most deaf, uh, like we were saying, his his voice and whatnot. Um, I, I, I didn't know what he was doing with that. I didn't know if he was trying to say that maybe he's somebody who's got some sort of mental handicap he seemed a little childlike in some yes. ways and even some ways the way he'd walk with his head down kind of shoulders yeah tucked in like just uh yeah I, there might have been some of that that was un, unspoken but it's a it's a weird weird performance but i i think it's it's very good i mean he's committed to whatever it is that he's trying to do and i think there are probably people like that well i i know i know there are we've run into people on the streets who you know act odd in in that way yeah. and i don't i don't know if it's a matter of him trying to assert that, the, that he's you know slow in some way or something because he seems he seems street smart he's always telling jack you know oh don't you know don't you know this is what's going on and you know he's no he's no dummy um but just the it's just it's, it's just a weird choice that he's playing it in a in a way that would suggest that he's um, you know, not all there, but then at the same time, you're supposed to think, well, he is actually a, a, a normal, good guy who's capable of, uh, you know, doing anything the rest of us could do. He wants to open up this bakery and, and all this other stuff. But uh, yeah, there's just, he he puts on that layer of, hey, there's something kind of off about this guy. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess that's good. It, it keeps it engaging. I don't know. I mean. But yeah, it, it took a while for me to get around his his accent and his sort of nasally, uh, <laughs> yeah, nasally New York thing. But I think I just got used to it as the movie went on. Thankfully, yeah, I think where it uh, changed is that scene in the subway station where he's trying to get on the subway. Like he gets away from Willis and he's sort of on the run and he's trying to get somebody to use their Metro Pass or whatever to sort of pass oh, him sure. through. And um, then finally, you know, Willis finds him and, and Willis is like, what are you doing? And and then finally, most stuff kind of yells and actually talks like a normal person. And he, he's like, oh, I forget what he all says, but he, he essentially like lays it all out for him. And he's just like, they're, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill you. They're going to do all this stuff. And, and he sounds so, so lucid and normal and shouting like a normal person. And then as soon as things calm down again, he kind of goes back into that, that sort of <laughs> childish talk, you know, and it's just, right. it's, 
I don't I don't know. I, I I didn't give him a lot of credit for it before, but when I was watching it this time, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, you know, sort of the the nuances of his his performance and everything. Um, and then so we should also. You... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh what? Um, can you explain to me because I was it was never clear to me what exactly he saw that he was having to. I know he saw the cops do something. Yeah. I don't know what their actual charges are. I think it's the, well, Willis makes it sound like at the end, like there's a laundry list of things that uh, supposedly there's six cops. And then uh, I guess, spoiler alert at the end, Willis reveals that he's one of them that if, if yeah. uh, most stuff goes in and, and talks about all the stuff they did. Um, the main thing seems to be this murder that David Morris talks about on, on the recording at the end. Oh, with the uh, I, sticking a gun in some old guy's yeah. mouth or something? Yeah, okay. And then he has a heart attack or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's the thing that most have witnessed. Okay. Um, that would that That's my takeaway. But yeah, I guess you're right. I don't know exactly what all he has on these these cops, but... Um, but yeah, well, so now we, we got ahead a little bit. So David Morris plays uh, Willis's ex-partner, um, and then they it's there's a there's a scene in the beginning where, um, like I mentioned, most stuff is almost shot, and then uh, that's where Willis sort of has this change of heart or or whatever, where he realizes he's still a still an honest cop or a good cop. He's not going to let anything happen to this kid. Um, and then Morris plays, or Morse, uh, he, he's always this convincing, cool, sort of calm, creepy, manipulative, authoritarian guy. Like everything he's in, he, he kind of plays this guy. So he's a, he's yeah. a good, good one to put in here. Um, and if, if Willis is doing his, his drunken kind of sad sack, redeemable hero thing, he's, he's evenly matched, you know, by war Morris doing the stuff that he always does. And they, then there's this bar scene where they, they set up most deaf, um, and it's it's pretty. I, I thought that scene was pretty chilling. Um, yes, especially on rewatch. Uh, there's there, so so Willis and Most Deaf are in this bar. Uh, Morse and a bunch of the other sort of crooked cops walk in there, um, and uh, they're they're going on about like how it's business as usual. They're just gonna you know set up. Uh, most deaf, they're gonna shoot him or do whatever they're gonna do to him, and they're just talking to Willis, like, you know, come on, let's let's just go get you a drink, and we'll get you out of here, and and all this yes. other stuff. And in the meantime, in the background, the guys are putting uh, uh, the fingerprints, uh, most deaf's fingerprints on the gun, and all this other all this other shit, and making him fire it, and you know, you, you know exactly what's going on, and it's just it's it's crazy. I I, I don't I don't know that that scene really got to me for some reason. I just I thought, yeah, I liked that scene a lot. It was very tense. It was one of those scenes where I'm like, I know this movie still has a ways to go. How are how is he going to get out of this? How are they going to get out of this? Because right. <laughs> there's like four cops there, and then there's Willis and most deaf. So I yeah, that was I was legit in in suspense as to what was going to happen. Yeah, and uh, you know Morris the way he tries to distract Willis as they're about to you know murder most stuff you know right in front of him is by asking him about his girlfriend and is he still oh, seeing yeah. her and you know Willis yet again he, he's drunk but you know they they underestimate his resolve and you know he shoots shoots first yet again Morris says stuff like you know this changes everything and uh, once you go out that door I can't help you and you know it's all really really great stuff and. 
uh, you know, this this movie gets dinged a little bit for just being kind of cliche and cliche in terms of both the buddy cop genre and then also the crooked cop genre and and that kind of stuff. But uh, I think it's all handled really well and it's really affecting. Um, there's a great mano a mano scene between Willis and Morse and Morse is always like chewing gum and you know makes him sound like a real dick and he's just kind of like saying shit like how long have we been friends and you know when I got up this morning I didn't expect on trading nine millimeters with my friend and you know <laughs> stuff like uh, I guess I'll have to save this for the eulogy at your funeral and he's really you know intimidating and and kind of scary and just just all the scenes with him are, are very good and uh, you know and again he's got this smooth kind of confidence uh, voice and he's just sort of shifty eyed and chewing gum and visibly calculating things the entire time he's doing all this and um, it's a really good performance and uh, he's often like that in movies like I was saying and I think it's his big strength as an actor and I I think he's great in this film and these both all all three of these leads I think are are really really good the way they they play off each other and um, handle that stuff. And then uh, you also got in the mix there, David, I, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but Zayas, who plays Batista and Dexter. He's one of the oh, sure. crooked cops. And just somebody I, I noticed and <laughs> thought it was worth pointing yes. out. <laughs> and he's got a got a kind of cool scene at the end, too. So of, of all the of all of Morris's henchmen, he's he's one of the, the main ones or major ones, I guess. But um and then, you know, incidentally, not to get too political, but Morris is trying to kill most deaf uh, because he's going to testify against, you know, these six dirty cops like we talked about. And in the real world, Morris should probably just chill uh, because they'd probably get off anyway if you know, the, <laughs> the way this stuff usually plays off is any indication. Right. And then so much like the gauntlet, uh, well, there's a bus thing, which we haven't touched on, but also... You know, in the end, if the the bad guys didn't come out, you know, kind of guns blazing or whatever, maybe just let this play out. They probably would have had a better chance of <laughs> beating right. this rap, but they <laughs> sort of shoot themselves in the foot. So, um, and yeah, then so then there's this bus scene where they they inadvertently have to take hostages on the bus in order to get to. Well, I didn't even mention the whole point of this movie is Willis has to get uh, most deaf hence the 16 blocks in the title from where he picks him up to the courthouse by 10 a.m. 10 o'clock. So they, yep. Yeah. So they've got 16 blocks to, to make it there. And uh, Morris and his band of, uh, you know, dirty cops are all trying to stop him at every turn. And so it's this sort of cat and mouse game of them going into apartment buildings and restaurants and, uh, you know, the bus and alleyways and, and whatever else, just Willis and most stuff doing whatever they can to escape. Um, I guess the the conveniences and coincidences do pile up a little bit along the way. Like there's all these, but again, it's great stuff by Richard Donner where you somebody opens a door and they show Willis sitting there, and then you think that's the door, but it's actually something else. Yeah, and, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's they pretty go good. On the bus and they're not on the bus anymore. Yeah, there's a <laughs> yeah. there's a few there's a few of those on the ambulance with his uh, yes. you know what what we thought was his girlfriend turns out to be his sister. Um, yeah, and then you know the whole time, uh, Mostef is talking about how his big dream is to open up a cake shop, and that's what he wants to do. And he's got this money sitting for him in a locker, but the locker is going to be cleared out by uh, they do it every twenty four hours, so by noon or something. So he's like, I was going to go testify at ten, and then I was going to go to the, the thing, get my money, head off to Seattle, open up my cake shop, and you know all this other stuff. And uh, he keeps telling him how people can change, and Willis is like, people can't change. You're a criminal. I'm an alcoholic. You know, blah blah blah. Like yeah. that's just what we are. And uh, you know, and there's this nice ending to the movie where, um, you know, he 
sends Willis that that cake finally at the end and says lists all the people they've talked about previously who can change and then at the end is Willis's name and it says see people can change and yeah um, you know it's a it's a nice just a nice ending and uh, you know to to a movie that up until then is super suspenseful and well done and yeah yeah i don't know i, was not, I noticed uh, that he was uh i not, noticed not he really was... a wasted wasted second or scene in the whole thing right yeah, there is an original or alternate ending or whatever you want to call it i guess that um you know the it, it's on the blu-ray i don't know where you watch this if you just rented it or, or <clears> yeah what, i just watched but... it on prime yeah um so i'll just read it off wikipedia but um the film was shot with the ending written for the screenplay um as described by donner and writer richard wink but they realized during filming that there was a better opportunity to have a little more empathy and wrap the picture up in a different way the ending written for the film changed the scenario in which frank after watching jack get in the elevator he instructs bobby to stand down saying it's over um Frank is uh, Morris, Jack is Willis, Bobby is the uh, Dave Batista, or not Dave Batista, but uh, Batista from uh, <laughs> from Dexter. From Dexter, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he instructs him to stand down, saying it's over. But Bobby's radio is off, and he's still planning on ambushing Jack in the lobby. Jack is approached by the district attorney, uh, says he will testify in Eddie's place in return for Eddie's uh, re- record being expunged. So that all happens in the in the normal movie. Um, as Jack reaches into his pocket. Bobby appears and Frank having run upstairs to stop Bobby leaps in front of Jack to protect him and gets shot causing the bolt to fall down the stairs. When they land at the bottom, it's discovered uh, the bullet went through Frank and fatally hit Jack. The tape recorder with Jack and Frank's conversation is heard playing uh, in Jack's pocket. Frank tearfully listens and looks at Jack with sorrow. The tape is taken to the jury. Frank and Bobby are led away. Uh, Blankets placed over Jack's body. Sometime later, Diane, uh, that's uh, Willis's sister, receives a cake. Receives a cake from Eddie. It's supposed to be for Jack's birthday, along with a letter saying he sent the cake, hoping to hear from Jack, but never did. Uh, he is then informed of what happened. He acknowledges Jack and wishes him a happy birthday. So, you know, that could have worked too. Yeah, I as, think it's nice. Emotional, let, yeah, I think it's nice they let Willis live. I don't know that. I mean, that's a more you know obvious ending i guess but uh like i like i thought the ultimate ending was going to be just willis gets you know shot by the, the cops or just as he's about to turn over the evidence or or whatever dies and, and they still get the evidence and the bad guys still go down or, or whatever and then you kind of have this hero's ending where willis goes out but um, i think it works well the way they they left it even if it's a little more predictable with the hero surviving and everything right and i thought i thought it was cute if cute's the right word the way they let uh, uh, most stuff kind of have his his moment there where he opened up his shop and then he yeah the, the picture of him outside a shy like that yeah yeah so so yeah yeah, good uh, yeah I agree I, Richard Donner I think is the MVP of that one though just his his direction and everything is is really really well done um, and then and then you got Willis too and and all three of those guys like I said I think are really good. Um, uh, but yeah, Willis does something a little different, even though, like we said, he's kind of played the alcoholic, you know, cop a million times. But here, he really sells it and settles into it. And um, and yeah, Richard Donner, man, I don't know, I, I think he he really 
really killed it with this one, just like Assassins and, and some of yep. the other stuff we talked about. So when when we discussed our uh, our Christmas movies from at Christmas time, did did Scrooge come up in either of our? We did. We talked about how Was we it... both didn't really like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's something I liked as a kid. Um, but yeah, if you watch it as an adult, it does have a lot of the Richard Donner. I almost said Donner. Yeah. Richard Donner. Um, <laughs> It's got the the usual people in it, or a lot of some of his usual folks in it, and some of that style that he was doing in the late '80s. But um, yeah, it's not like yeah. it's it's a bad badly directed movie. I just don't. No, uh, he's he's definitely not the problem. <laughs> I just don't think it was particularly good, um, right? You know, or funny or whatever it is. But. Yeah, if it's trying to be funny, it's not working very well. If it's trying to be a drama then it's not really working on that aspect either yeah yeah i mean i i again i don't hate it but it just was not mm. a movie i found very funny i think a lot of people really liked it and i heard all my life how good it was and then i finally watched it. i didn't see it as a kid i don't have any big nostalgia for it or anything right uh but then i i finally went back and watched it and i was just like i don't i don't get this at all (laughs) yeah i'm not a big fan of superman either really that's i mean it's i need to see it again but i from what i remember i didn't it's not it's not great i haven't seen it in so long i i think it's one of those things where you got to put yourself back in 78 or whatever and go okay this was the height of superhero (laughs) and and all that but um but yeah you're right i don't i don't love it either so i i I don't know just it was never really my thing I, i like batman more and stuff like that so. yeah part of it but I, I was thinking he did um bird on the wire but that was john badham wasn't it <laughs> yeah yeah he, <laughs> well kind of like we were talking about a minute ago the the quote journeyman directors who just go you know a studio hires them to just make a, a movie some of those guys are really good i like john bottom i like steven summers yeah. i like um peter himes or hames uh, you know I, I think all those oh, guys yeah. are are actually good directors, but uh, they just, they seem to just sort of bounce around and we'll do whatever they're given. And they end up with some of these scripts for some wonky creature feature or, or whatever it is. But right. <laughs> um, a guy like Donner, even though, again, he's not a Spielberg necessarily or something, I think he, he's got a little more uh, to him. His projects are a little more personal and, and, and they're ones that I feel fleshed out that, you know, he truly, likes or wants to be part right. of or involved in and it's it's not something the studio just sort of threw at him or hired him to do so um i think he he sits a little apart from those guys but i i, I see what you're saying yeah he could have he could have very easily directed burn on a wire or uh you know anything beverly hills cop yeah. or yeah, whatever it exactly. is exactly so um so tell me ron how did this movie do upon its release <laughs> in march of 06 well peter i will tell you um it made not a unrespectable uh where was it it's 60 something worldwide so okay. budget was 50 52 million it grossed 65.7 worldwide but only 3.6 or 36.5 in the u.s so um this was a weird period for willis where he was doing movies like last man standing which we talked about last time and we both loved uh, but then there's stuff like Mercury rising the jackal and you know stuff like this and some of them yeah they've did okay but they it, it's in this 20 to 50 million dollar range of the box office which 
uh, you know, is not good for a major Hollywood star. And, uh, you know, you got stuff like The Sixth Sense or Armageddon or a new Die Hard movie that would come out and some some ensemble thing like Pulp Fiction where he'd get critical raves for. And that stuff kept him in the spotlight and as a major draw. So not unlike Eastwood, like we were talking about in that respect, where, you know, you'd have three or four in a row that didn't do much. And then you'd have one or two that would remind everybody, you know, who he was and why he was yeah. a huge star and they were a huge hit. And um, But here's the funny thing about this. And, and I don't know why this was mentioned in in the wikipedia and this and not for most other movies but it was huge on dvd it made 51 million in rentals uh <laughs> so it, it the same amount that it made in theaters wow. it made yeah. it made in rentals it remained on the charts for 17 consecutive weeks uh, and this is kind of how you start to see how these uh, aging action heroes realize that uh, the straight to dvd market would be their you know bread and butter moving forward or, or into the 2010s and everything. Um, but audiences, they really liked the film. Uh, critics were, you know, they were kind of unimpressed with its overall familiarity, but they, they were fine with it. You know, it's, it's got a sort of middle of the road critic ranking on Rotten Tomatoes and stuff. Um, I think if you get past the whole, it's just another buddy action flick uh, with most of those tropes and dig into how it plays and all that. Um, I think there's a lot to appreciate in it um, beyond the, the surface sort of elevator pitch of it. Uh, and again, you got Donner, Willis, they're pros of the genre, and then most Steph and David Morris, they're terrific support. Uh, so, you know, what what is there to gripe about? It's it's not a there's yeah. nothing nothing wrong with it. Um, the one funny thing I also saw about this was that in 2013, um, Bollywood was going to remake this, The Expendables, um, Rambo, and a handful of other ones into. <laughs> You know, Bollywood movies that I can't imagine really? the, the Bollywood version is. I don't know if they ever did that or not, but <laughs> that that would be something I'd like to look into just to see. Right, just so, to watch two minutes of it and see if it's worth anything. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a weird slate of movies, and especially, you know, one like this that really wasn't, you know, a hit or, or nobody really remembers or, you know, talks about it as being some, like, I, I can see doing Rambo or something, I guess, but but yeah. this, the Expendables, I don't, they, there must be a, a, um, what do you want to call it? Like a, a crossover producer or something who's selling the rights. Uh, here, it says, in, in May 2013, Original Entertainment confirmed to have sealed a five-picture deal with Millennium Films to produce Bollywood remakes of Rambo, The Expendables, 16 Blocks, 88 Minutes, and Brooklyn's Finest. Bollywood's <laughs> <laughs> Finest. Yeah, with with yeah, right. With uh, productions for Rambo and the Expendables expected to start at the end of the year. I don't know if those ever came to fruition or not, but right, it's, it's hard to know because you never really hear about if they actually happen because they wouldn't yeah. have anybody with a cast, anybody in the cast that we would know about. Yeah, I mean they they've done it for some stuff, but I, I don't I didn't go through and look to see if all these got <laughs> you know done, but. But yeah, uh, I don't know. I, Millennium Films is, I guess, the the thing there that would be making that happen. They're sort of a... Okay. You know, they did all the Expendables movies. Well, they probably did all these movies, and that's why uh, they have the rights to them to sell them there. And I guess whatever Bollywood entertainment company is so desperate for <laughs> stuff that... <laughs> but yeah, I, I noted... Sorry, go oh, ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say they. I looked it up. They did. They did do remakes of Reservoir Dogs and Mrs. Toutfire and uh, yeah. Um, I forgot. I saw Forrest Gump too. 
<laughs> All right. I mean, yeah, maybe it's a yeah. it's a thriving industry. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah, uh, the when I when I first saw it, you know, like I said, I made the connection to the gauntlet, and I, I thought that's the, sort of the first thing I thought about, just based on the fact that it's about a, a alcoholic cop trying to get a witness from one place to another, that even incorporates a bus and and all that stuff. And like I said, even the original poster kind of made me think of that. So um, a couple things I, I saw on Wikipedia, people mentioned that it reminded them of that. So critics obviously took note i wasn't the only one to sort of make that comparison but um yeah. yeah i think watching these two movies together is a is a really interesting thing to do and um and i think they're both both very good they're they're different in a lot of ways obviously just separated by time um and then sure. different cast and director and, and stuff like that but i think as far as a double feature goes uh that's it's a it's a solid one that people should certainly seek out i don't know it's yeah like... i totally agree I, I was i watched 16 blocks first and then the gauntlet and found oh, okay. myself comparing a lot at the beginning of the gauntlet and then yeah. about halfway through i was so immersed in the yeah something... of the gauntlet yeah, yeah. right until <laughs> right. the bus shows up and then it's <laughs> yeah exactly another bus yeah all right. Well, I guess that does it for this week. Uh, next week, we are doing what, Peter? We are going to do a double feature of Lone Wolf McQuaid and the original Evil Dead from 1983. Both opened, what, the 15th Both of April? April 15th, 1983, yes. All right. So we'll be reviewing those. I guess it'll be more around the 18th, 19th, and then I'll probably get it out around the 25th. So we'll be a little late to the party with those. But either way, we'll get back on track for our, uh, uh, you know, actually 40 years to the date uh, reviews here. So, yeah. and then who knows? We'll have to come up with some other fun stuff that uh, falls outside of those parameters for our next uh, bonus episode. But exactly. But yeah. All right, we're moving along. Okay, people, remember to rate, review, like, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. Tell your friends. I don't know. One of these days, we'll we'll hit on one of these where I'm just like, oh yeah, this is the one, and then I'll like just throw it all out there on social media. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stop having microphone trouble or issues. Uh, I don't know. We'll... Connectivity issues. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested to see how this one sounds because you all of a sudden went from you know like a five to a, a twenty here. So <laughs> I don't know. sorry. No, it's not your fault, but I I don't know if that's just what happens when it stops. Also, I'm hearing myself playback a lot more than i did last time so i'm hoping there's not like a huge echo or anything in the last uh -oh. yeah 13 minutes of this but whatever it, I mean, it is what yeah. it is we're just we're just working through it man so exactly. these are this shit's all just like resume builder to you know when somebody comes along and is like hey you guys know how to podcast we'll be like yeah check all this out yeah exactly <laughs> and then we'll then get we'll, we'll get in it well, no, but then we'll just get like a, a real thing where somebody can like produce us and worry about all this shit, you know, themselves. And right, <laughs> and we can just sit here and talk, and we'll get a guy to do research yeah. for us. So I don't have to go like, oh yeah, uh, I forgot what, what number movie this was for Clint Eastwood or whatever. Right. <laughs> Sorry. We're Actually, through it. we're probably we're probably more awesome for the fact that we have to do this all ourselves, and we're coming up with this stuff off the top of our head or with like really quick research that just goes to show, you know, how, how awesome we actually are. So. I agree. 
Yeah. Uncomparable. Incomparable? I don't know. Incomparable. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for hey, listening, man. everybody. It's 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 your world, Peter. Just whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> people make up words all the time, and, and then they just stick no, around, sure. and next thing you know, people are like, oh, well, that should be part of the language now. So. <laughs> okay. Yes. guess so. Exactly. Irregardless, you know. Irregard. Yes. Misinterpret. Uncomparable. Yep. Uncomfortable. <laughs> You're a trendsetter, man. It's gonna be... <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's me. 